0: case this is one of the rare occasions where civilians to actually reach the crash site before the military does that's partly why we have this testimony so these four these oil workers suddenly they notice a US army helicopter come out of nowhere and make one circle around the scene and then leave which really surprised them because back then helicopters were very rare and so they were like okay time is short Uh, We've got to find a way in before we're kicked out of here. And so they start looking for a way in. One of them notices a small crack, uh, almost like a quarter-sized hole in one of the windows. And they appear inside this porthole-like window. To their dismay, they see two small bodies slumped over a control panel. i The history of our Earth is so different from what we can imagine. The, the Smithsonian, that if they found out about a large skeleton somewhere, was to go get it. I'm going to assume at least one person is right, because if one person's right, it busts the paradigm. It all goes back to the fallen
1: chariot. all right all right all right welcome back to blurry creatures we are uh we are we're 100 miles an hour all the time talking about creatures unknown creatures uh, which gets us into spiritual entities ufos aliens bigfoot giants all the all the above if you're just joining us we have uh derek from megalithic marvels on today derek's got an awesome channel talks about the golden age these uh pre-flood societies who built some pretty amazing stuff and we've had him on the show five or six times he was at our conference good dude Love, Derek. We're going to hop into uh, some UFO crashes, some famous ones. But before that, we have some stuff that's in the news today. And so we thought it would be cool to read some of that because this is really pressing and timely. That every day it seems like more and more stuff's coming out that they have technology from somewhere.
2: Yeah, it, it, I mean, it's it's amazing how these things seem to happen because this show's been scheduled for a while. We've been talking and throwing around this idea of, of talking about these historical crashes of UAP, UFO, unknown craft. what has happened, what the accounts are and, and sort of how those have, have hit and then, and, and then sort of removed been removed from from the mainstream media. But we're in a time now, as we've talked about a lot that this phenomena is now mainstream, whether it be the idea of the US and Canada allegedly shooting down UFOs earlier and earlier in the year or you know of course the declassification of the tic-tac video. It is not slowly really in the last year or so but very much fire hose like coming out into the mainstream and today uh june 5th this hit the wire intelligence officials say the u.s has retrieved craft of non-human origin this is from the debrief an article by leslie keen and ralph blumenthal and it says a former intelligence official turned whistleblower has given congress and the intelligence community inspector general Extensive classified information about deeply covert programs that he says possess retrieved intact and partially intact craft of non-human origin. The information he says has been illegally withheld from Congress, and he filed a complaint alleging that he suffered illegal retaliation for his confidential disclosures reported here for the first time. Other intelligence officials, both active and retired, with the knowledge of these programs through their work in various agencies, have independently provided similar corroborating information both on and off the record. The whistleblower is David Charles Grush, 36, a decorated former combat officer in Afghanistan, is a veteran of the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency and National Reconnaissance Office. He served as the Reconnaissance Office's representative to the Unidentified Aerial Phenomena Task Force from 2019 to 2021. And from late 2021 to July of 2022, who's the NGA's co-lead for UAP analysis and it's representative to the task force. And it's a long article, you can read the rest of this, but essentially this guy with pretty spotless credentials has said that this information and the reality of of craft of non-human origin being recovered by the United States is true and been withheld from Congress. So if you haven't seen this, Please take a look and read the entire article, but this is phenomenal timing as we are going to get into some historical examples with Derek Olson of craft crashing and being recovered by the U.S. government, and as always, it's our immense pleasure to welcome Derek Olson to the show.
1: Yeah, and one thing we didn't say on the show episode that I thought that I I think it was good noting is that I remember when Diana Pasolka came on the show, she wrote that book American Cosmic, she was saying that... She got special access to the Vatican archives, and uh, as we know, some of the mo- be- the best history books and the, probably the, the most true version of history is probably written, <laughs> stuffed in books in that place that most people can't get to, but she said there was a whole wing um, dedicated to UFOs, UFO sightings, and, and, and things of that nature. Not just a book, but a whole wing of books.
2: So, Many books. It yeah. resuscitates a, a wing.
1: Right? <laughs> hey, I like that. It is. But, you know, this isn't something that is just kind of now all of a sudden leaking out, or Hollywood is kind of pushing this on us, or it's a modern phenomena, or it's, a, it's just some government project. This is something that's been going on a long time, and I think people out there need to expand their perspectives and understand that what we're going to talk about this episode isn't... It's really hard. It's really hard for a lot of people because they have their very narrow view of all this and they They bring that into this conversation. So open your mind. Let Derek kind of take you back some of these historical accounts and and what's been pieced together over the years and like we've seen recently You know, you have some major event. It takes 30 40 years before all the information comes out, right? At least And then you're like, oh that did happen, right? Just recently we saw a video of the crash site at the Pentagon during a certain popular date in September and uh, we didn't see any plane debris, Luke. So I don't know if we'll leave this in the show, but yeah. you know, but you know, 25 years later, whatever long it's been, all of a sudden, the information comes out. Oh, whatever we were told wasn't exactly what happened that day.
2: No, and I, I would say that the, the, for each of these, each of these stories, there is there is a very strong counter narrative that has been pushed by the government, by the Air Force, and. And by the authorities with power, be a reminder. At these times, there was no internet, no social media, there was no dissemination of information outside of your newspaper and the news and what they told you. And so, take a listen to what the witnesses and the researchers that were either did the work or were on the scene had to say about this. And and make up your as always on blurry creatures, make up your own mind. But you know, it's very interesting to listen to. To what the people on the ground had to say, as opposed to what the official narrative is, and and I, I would take that with, with all things, right? It's 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 a, uh, it's worth doing the research, and and it's worth making up your own mind and thinking about these things. So, as always, it's uh, this is gonna be fun. So, welcome to the Blurryverse
1: Welcome back to Blurry Creatures. I won't do my quintessential joke this time, Luke. I'll spare you. We have got Derek from Megalithic Marvels on today, and uh, usually Luke loves his joke when Derek comes on. Yeah, we are going. St- we're st- not. We're not going to the Bone Zone today, though.
2: No, but it, you know, like for all intents and purposes, we still are. It, we still are. I <laughs> <We're> mean, still- <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's the guy that needs no introduction. Derek Olsen the megalithic Marvel straight back from Egypt I was there ground Zero it's exciting we were just talking um, before the show in our pre-roll here about next year's trip and and uh, you know Derek does an annual trip to Egypt with Muhammad Ibrahim it is this is an incredible one of a, a kind experience uh, the blurry boys are going to join up at some point we are going to be in Egypt with our good friend Derek Olsen who was also at BlurryCon, of course, if you're familiar with the show. But great to have you on. You've been a great friend of the show. We love your work. Oh my gosh, we love your work and and everything that Mm -hmm. you do. Nate and I are headed to Peru. We're looking at some megaliths. But today, Derek, we are getting, uh, we're not going to be in the bone zone. We are
1: getting famous UFO crashes. That's right.
2: Yeah. It it just dropped today. We were making jokes about how how many have gotten sent. People sent me this today. There's been quite a few, but Intelligence officials are coming out and saying that the U.S. has achieved craft of non-human origin. That could be a surprise to a lot of folks out there. Uh, probably more surprising they're talking about it and admitting to it, other than the surprise that that they have it. If you followed any any ufology stuff for the last twenty, thirty years, you would know. Um, you'd you've heard of Bob Lazar and and his account of reverse engineering, you know, recovered craft, and you know, you, you people a lot of people. We'll write him off. A lot of people will say that they believe him that there's a lot of camps on are but the reality is it is that there are a lot of stories, anecdotal and also on the record, as well that that attest to UFOs, the unidentified flying objects, and they call them UAPs now, unidentified aerial phenomena crashing and being recovered. and So this is going to be fun, Derek. We, we had tossed this idea around sometime after blurry cons. This's been kind of marinating for at least a few months. Uh you said this is kind of outside of this is definitely outside of what megalithic marvels does however this is something you've been very interested in so as always we're very excited to to go through cuz you're, you're meticulous in your research whether we we're talking about cyclopean architecture or you know the the marvels of Egypt Sardinia or Easter Island or the mysteries of Mount Shasta we are uh or Lovelock caves. We you you, you you bring the you you bring the full scope and and always bring the thunder. So welcome back to the show, Derek, and excited to uh, to talk about this today. We haven't really gone through any of this, which I think is at least in in specifics. So this is going to be very fun and 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 I think intriguing considering what is what is now hitting mainstream media this year and even today. You know, with ex military ex intelligent people. With lawyers coming out saying this is actually happening.
0: Cool guys, yes. Yeah. So I'm really excited to dive into this topic. And we are going to cover, I think, what are probably considered three of the most famous uh, UFO crash retrieval stories. And uh, I sent you guys some pictures. Uh, so as we kind of hit each of these three, you guys can, uh, we can reference these photos. And to me, these photos just kind of really bring the story to life, especially the last two were we'll cover. But yeah, the timing, Luke, with Innate, this breaking news today of uh, the, the covert covered up crash retrieval programs by the government of these exotic origin uh, craft, I think is crazy timing. So we got to start with Roswell. Sound good? Uh, of course. So the Ros- Roswell crash nineteen forty seven. 1947. Uh, and let me set this up by saying that you know, and a lot of people might know this, some people might not, so it's just good to have a little history. So leading up to the Roswell event, right, there began to be many UFO sightings uh, throughout the world, especially during World War II and shortly after, uh, that were sightings by military personnel of flying objects that no one really had a basis for back then, most notably over Scandinavia, where they were called or were known as ghost rockets. Mm and i think i think between 46 and 47 there was over 2000 of these ghost rocket sightings so you had that going on and then there was the famous kenneth arnold sighting june 1947 in washington state my home state so this guy was a private pilot he's flying near my backyard of mount rainier And he claims to have seen a series of these nine shiny saucer-shaped objects that were like flying over a thousand miles per hour. So this was the first post-World War II sighting in the United States that garners all this nationwide coverage and is really credited with being like the first modern era UFO sighting. And so after that Kenneth Arnold sighting, basically the phrase flying saucer was born, right? So that kind of sets the backdrop for Roswell. So in American UFO history, few incidents have inspired as much fascination and speculation as, as the one in Roswell, uh, which happened in the summer of 1947. And more than 70 years later, I mean, this event, basically remains a defining aspect of our pop culture, right? The If you go to the town of Roswell, they've got like a UFO museum, uh-huh. a, a flying saucer-inspired McDonald's, <laughs> alien-themed streetlights. There's even, I've seen pictures. It's pretty cool. There's this extraterrestrial family stranded in a broken-down UFO on the side of State Route 285 looking for a jump start. So <laughs> they've totally taken the UFO alien theme and, and ran with it. But as historian Richard Dolan points out, for about 30 years or so after the actual Roswell event happened, almost no one knew about it Mm. because of the quick cover performed by the military, Mm. which we'll get into. So it was only because of the hard work of a few people in the 70s and 80s, uh, specifically Stanton Friedman, uh, who went and tracked down the eyewitnesses who were still alive at that time captured their memories and basically the Roswell story was resurrected. And so the memories and stories of all these eyewitnesses, when you add them up, sure seem to tell a different story than the government's explanation of weather balloons. So it all starts Saturday, I think it was July 5th, 1947. A guy named Mac Brazel, he's the foreman of the Foster Ranch, which is located approximately 75 miles north of Roswell. And this guy's outside and he starts to notice strange debris scattered across this very large pasture. He begins to pick up various pieces of this debris and he found that it was unusually lightweight yet super strong. And there was what looked like metal and then this foil-like material that's, you know, become associated with Roswell. And he said that later he tried to cut and burn some of the, deb- deb- the debris, but he had no success doing so. So that was Saturday, July 5th. Sunday, July 6th, uh, brazil brings some of this debris, uh, and Brazil again is the uh, foreman of this ranch, brings the debris to the Roswell sheriff named George Wilcox. George Wilcox sends two deputies out to investigate and they come back and report back to him that, yeah, there's this huge area that looks burned and glass-like. I guess the sand almost turned to like this glass-like material, which lends to excessive heat, right? So Sheriff Sheriff Wilcox then, he's like, okay, taking this more serious, he calls the Roswell Army Airfield, which at the time was home to the 509 Bombardier Group. And this is the same group that dropped the atomic bombs over Japan in World War II. So this 509 uh, Bombardier Group uh, was apparently the only unit in the world at the time that had the ability to drop nuclear weapons. So if you're looking for a unit to do an elite secret task, this is probably the group, right? Right. And this unit was commanded by a guy named Colonel William Blanchard, who later goes on to become a four-star general in the 60s. Okay, so this is happening on Sunday, July 6th. Here's where it gets good. On Monday, July 7th, this Colonel Blanchard sends a team to investigate the site. And they're led by three guys, Captain Jesse Marcel, remember that name? And he's with a guy named Sheridan Cabot and William Rickett. So these three guys meet with this rancher, Mac Brazel, and they go out and they visit the crash site with him. And according to, I believe it's Jesse Marcel's testimony, this debris field was about three quarters of a mile long and 300 feet wide. So very large. And there was a huge gouge in the ground that was 500 feet long. Marcel noticed debris as thin as newsprint, but incredibly strong. So again, he's corroborating what Mac Brazel said about it being thin yet strong. And apparently from other eyewitnesses, the the debris could not be dented even with a sledgehammer. And then again, this foil-like material, it could be crumpled, but it would return to its original shape without wrinkles. Jesse Marcel notices, and this this is interesting to me, eye beams with odd symbols on them. And I'll come back to that later with somebody else's testimony. Um, So years later, this Jesse Marcel told investigator Stanton Friedman that uh, the debris was definitely not a plane, missile, or a weather tracking device. He said, quote, it was something you'd never seen before or since, and it certainly wasn't anything built by us, end quote. So this Jesse Marcel the 509 Bombardier Group is really kind of the key figure in the whole Roswell story, right? So he loads up his vehicle, uh, I believe this is again Monday, July 7th, with debris that night. And one of the guys with him did as well. So on his way back to the base, Marcel makes a detour. Uh, I love this because this is what I would have done to his house at about 2 a.m., and he wakes up his wife and his son who's 11 years old at the time his son is named Jesse Jr and he shows them pieces of this wreckage or the debris and he basically says this is from a UFO that just crashed we've got it right here in the house and Jesse Jr went on to write a book about this i think it was called the Roswell Legacy where he was forever impacted but can you guys imagine like that you're Jesse Jr you're asleep in your bed. You you hear your dad open your door at 2 a.m. and he's like, "Son, I got something to show you. This is a UFO wreckage. Uh, how epic would that be?" It's wild. That reminds wow. me of
1: reminds me of Super Eight when in that movie when the, the kids like see the. Uh, it's kind of a little different, but they see, you know they they take those little like cubes back that they find, but that are like f- supposedly from a UFO crash. But this is an interesting, Derek, because this is like. One of the arguments Luke and I make a lot on this show is that a lot of people think this whole thing is just spiritual, but you're talking about physical evidence for stuff. You're talking about crashes, parts, unknown elements, unknown materials, things that you know have been happening for a long time that show signs of an advanced faction of entities, whether they're from the inside the earth or somewhere else, whatever they are, wherever they're from, you know, it's not a, it's not an apparition. It's not a, it's not a, uh, uh, a psyop. It's not some mi- military. It's not as easy as putting it in one box. It's kind of, it opens up all these boxes. And it may, when you're when you're describing this, it makes me think of all kinds of things that people describe, whether it's crop circles, cattle mutilations, crashes. I mean, all these things are outside of that spiritual box. And so I like these documented historical accounts because it kind of forces specifically christians to kind of open their mind a little bit more and be like hey you know like all these stories can't be explained away with one simple bible verse you know wave the magic wand and it just goes away it's just not how it works and 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 i don't know what it is and i don't know where it comes from most of these stories just leave you with more questions but i think it's good for us to we, we get this started to think that it's just one of many strange things that happen with ufo crashes and in, inciting so
2: well, i also like the uh the human reaction i think i think it, it leads credence right he wants to he waking up his wife and kid out out of out of sleep at two in the morning to show him this thing and this is somebody from the air force from the 509th bombardment group this is this is a yeah. someone very familiar with planes and aircraft and and, aer- and aeronautic material and and he's so excited that he wants to show somebody Close to him, what he has, and I like it because it's also outside of of someone else in the military. These are non military personnel. These are family members, of course, right? And so you could always say, well, they have to, they're toeing the line or whatever. But they don't toe the line, as we're going to find out. And I, I, I just think it gives credence to the fact that something happened that to someone who was very familiar with with aeronautics and materials and flight and everything else. And this guy was so enamored or excited or passionate just pumped about what he found that he had to show somebody and, and someone who's not in the military chain of command mm-hmm. it's, i mean this is like if you're talking about you know solid evidence because as you're going to tell, tell the story and a lot of people are familiar with it we're going to find that they do the old government switcheroo on us at some point here and i don't want to am not going to spoil the story for you but <laughs> you know it, it becomes something other than what it is and this is a time you know, a different time where everybody got their news from from you know from one source or from newspaper or from you know one newscast or two news channels, and we didn't have smartphones and cameras and uh, social media. We didn't have people dancing on TikTok. You know, this was this was something that could be very much controlled and channeled. So I just want, I find I like this I like this part of the story because it feels very human and visceral, and then at the same time it provides for voices outside of a of the of the military industrial complex just you know even though they they be familial it's still they're not someone in the chain of command
0: yeah great insight i love what you both just shared because you're right we've got this human reaction and yeah who this guy was this is this is an elite military personnel like you said he's familiar with craft and equipment and if this is just a balloon why is he stopping at his house at 2 a.m to wake up his son and and his wife. So I think that was again Monday, July 7th. While this is happening, at some point, the military police are sent to Sheriff Wilcox's office. And so it's almost like the cover-up is beginning in the in the middle of the night. They're collecting the debris that rancher Mac Brazil had originally brought to the sheriff's office, right? Next day, Tuesday, July 8th, Jesse Marcel And uh, one of the guys with him, Cabot, they go to the Roswell Army base with their two truckloads of all this debris. And they go to base commander Colonel Blanchard, and he tells them that they're actually to take the debris now to Air Force headquarters in Fort Worth, Texas and meet with a General Roger Ramey. So I did a quick map. I think that's like seven hours away. So these guys are going for a little road trip with debris. And uh, at this point, as far as we know, these guys totally believe they have actual pieces of this flying disc in their vehicles. So they're on their way to Fort Worth, Texas from Roswell. Around noon though, on July 8th, on Tuesday, this Colonel Blanchard who told him to go to Fort Worth, he tells his public information officer, a guy named Walter Hout, send out a press release stating what has happened. And what we have. So this guy, how it goes to the local KGFL radio station. They send out a Western Union to radio stations, newspapers. It reaches the Associated Press wire and then all hell breaks loose nationwide. The Roswell Daily Record, their headline, and I sent you guys this newspaper heart article. It says, RAAF captures flying saucer on ranch in Roswell region. So that's a real newspaper headline. Uh, published by the Roswell Daily Record. I mean, that must have sent shockwaves through the community. But about three hours after this announcement, so Jesse Marcel is now in Fort Worth, Texas, and he's in the office of this General Roger Ramey with the debris, some of the debris from his truck. Now, according to Marcel's testimony, At one point, he and the general both leave this office together for a certain period of time to do something. When they come back in Roger Ramey's office, Marcel says the debris had been switched. In place of the original debris was now a ripped up apart balloon scattered on the floor. Ramey had AP reporter in the room right there who was ready to break a new story about uh, that this was all just a weather balloon, right? Nothing to see here. And then, then they made Jesse Marcel pose with the scraps of the balloon and basically take the fall for being an idiot, for being fooled. And at the same time, the original eyewitness, Mac Brazel, the rancher, he's apparently placed under military guard for several days, or I've even heard up to a week. So again, if this is just a balloon, why are they taking this poor old rancher and putting him under military guard for a week? So something else to point out, and I sent you guys photos of this, a local Roswell resident, a guy named Robert Ridge, he unearthed what's known by someone as the Roswell Rock. Did you guys see that picture? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. He found this in 2004 while hunting not far from the crash site. Now, at first I thought maybe this is just, you know, I guess I guess some people still might think it's a hoax. At first I thought, man, this is just kind of probably some hyped hoax. But man, when I started to look into it, you look at the small brownish rock and it's got this design that protrudes from the top of it, featuring these circles, what looks like shapes of the sun and crescent moon in the center. Precision carved. right? We're talking like something you'd see megalithic wise in Egypt or Peru, and it's got magnetic properties. I've seen videos of this thing spinning with magnets. So what's interesting to note is he found this near the skip site. So there was the skip site where the, the craft first hit the ground and then went back up, left a massive, de, massive debris field, and then it finally came down at the crash site. So you got the skip site and the crash site. So was this rock possibly f- thrown from the craft when it hit the ground at this skip site and did the military somehow miss it during their months long cleanup. Crazy thing is I sent you another picture of this crop circle in found in England in 1996. It's got the exact same design as that rock. So some have theorized, again, this might be an elaborate hoax using a sandblasting technique through the use of computer generated stencils, cutting and sandblasting. Um, But you can see a video of um, a local stone carver who was given a chance to replicate this Roswell rock using that technique, and it was totally inferior to that actual rock itself. So you guys got any thoughts on the rock? It's
1: really interesting. Yeah, it kind of looks like a crop circle, and that's something that we haven't really talked about on the show. We're going to do an episode on crop circles. We're trying to get a team that's been researching for 30 years. One thing about crop circles, if you look into it for a while, you realize that, there are some fakes there are some hoaxes but a lot of these are really intricate and the way that the sort of the crops are bent over they're more vaporized all at once it's not like human beings pushing them down i wish more people understood that the crop circles are really hard to fake and there are so many of them
2: and i would say Derek being a uh, you know the the megalithic marvels guy this is interesting in the sense of it reminds me of some of the things that that you've posted and and shown that people to craftsman today can't replicate either, whether it be in Egypt or some of these three D you know, hieroglyphics and, and and carvings in in obelisks and things like that. It kind of gives me that that feel. Uh, the story is fascinating to me because you have a very honest reaction in a news wire and even a follow up article the next day, and then. You have this very lock and key shut. Oh, it was a weather balloon, and then it disappears. And you're like, "This is it's too weird. It just is. It's too. It's why I think it's why this whole this story remains, and why Roswell remains what it is, and what you described in the beginning. Right? Is that people aren't buying the narrative that that was that was peddled after if what feels like the truth came came out at the beginning. Right? So one of those mysteries. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's important to note that this uh, skip site I referenced is also known by some as the Ragsdale site. And that's because a guy named Jim Ragsdale uh, and his apparent girlfriend were camping at this exact spot and saw a craft come in and were some of the first on scene before the military showed up. And according to Ragsdale, from what I gather, he claims to have actually seen bodies at this site. This other guy that was with Jesse Marcel, his name was Bill Rickett. Uh, He wasn't only at the crash site with Marcel and the rancher, but he told researchers um, later that he also went out to escort a guy named Dr. Lincoln LaPaz, or LaPaz, who back then was a world-renowned meteor expert. He was to escort this guy to the crash site and this guy was hired by the military, La Paz, or La Paz, to find out what the speed and trajectory of the craft was. And La Paz also said, he corroborated the stuff about the sand. He said the sand had been turned glass-like due to landing and takeoff. And La Paz was on record for saying that he actually believed, I found this fascinating, that there were several objects that had come down at Roswell, not just one. Mac Brazel Again, this original eyewitness foreman at the ranch. He had a son named Bill Brazzle. Bill was interviewed multiple times years later, and he might have even written a book too. But he's on record of sharing that years after the crash, he was at a bar talking about all this with some, some buddies. And he was talking about the foil-like debris that you could crumple and that would return to its normal shape. And he told them he still had some of it. And a few days later, guess who arrives? The military comes knocking on the door. And they said they learned that he uh, was still in possession of some of this debris and that they wanted it. And he reluctantly gave it to them. So that's Mac Brazel, son of the rancher. And then you got Jesse Marcel Jr., who I referenced earlier. He was the 11-year-old son of Jesse Marcel, and um, he wrote a book called The Roswell Legacy, and he talks about how when his father brought some of the UFO wreckage home, he literally got to handle it, touch it, and he described it as metallic. And I liked what he said here. This always stood out to me. He said, "Quote: I could see what looked like writing. At first, I thought of Egyptian hieroglyphics, but there were no animal outlines or figurines or figures." They weren't mathematical figures either. They were more like geometric symbols, squares, circles, triangles, pyramids, and the like, end quote. Interesting quote there from The Sun. A couple more uh, eyewitness tidbits to wrap this up before we move on to our next crash. Um, the guy named Glenn Dennis, he was a mortician in 1947 in Roswell. And he's on record of saying He remembered getting several calls in July from the Roswell Army Airfield mortuary officer who wanted to know about getting hermetically sealed, basically airtight caskets, and how small could he get these. So he always thought that was very odd. Um, There was a a lady named Barbara Duger. She was the granddaughter of Roswell Sheriff George Wilcox, where the rancher brought the first debris to. So this granddaughter claimed that her her grandmother, the sheriff's wife, told her that after the crash, military police uh, showed up and told the sheriff and his wife that their entire family would be killed if they ever talked about this. And she also said that George, the sheriff again, had gone out to the site himself and saw four, quote, space beings, end quote, with large heads and suits that were silk-like, and one of the beings was alive.
1: Yeah, this is the stories that you hear and you see in movies that there were beings there that were still alive and most of them were were gone. I think the casket phone call is interesting. These airtight caskets cuz they're trying to preserve these things probably. And you know, it kind of makes me think of like the difference between a hoax and a real event. Something like Patterson Gimlin film where it just it, to this day it's still debated. Roswell to this day it's still still debated. And things that I think are real, real events, they sort of burn themselves into a time period and people can't get over it. And the locals can't get over it because people have stories like this. Like their grandson is still telling a story in a book or whatever because it's that important. I mean, the wife of you know Patterson still has the film, right? She's still guarding the film to this day. So it's like, I I think people are, highly skeptical and they're so yeah. they they want evidence for themselves and they but you can't get it right you're not going to have a little piece of the spacecraft you're not going to have you know record of your parent having phone calls from from the air force base you're not going to have these little things you have to kind of trust that some of these people are saying look this is this is the best evidence we have because the way that the government operates it's going to hide every single piece of evidence possible so I like that. I like that. There's all these little clues surrounding that day, and that the, you can kind of trust the official story from the first responders, so to speak, the people that were there, the people that saw the crash site, and the people that saw some of these beings scattered out on the ground. But that is weird, and that's hard for people, especially Christians, because they don't they don't have an index for this.
0: Yeah, and it was later later discovered that. Again, researchers like Stanton Friedman and these others, a lot of authors that have written on the subject, you know, tried to get records from 1947 and Roswell, phone records and paper records. Well, it's been discovered that all the administrative records and phone records, outgoing messages from Roswell Army Airfield from 1945 to 49, all inexplicably destroyed. Mm. So they're gone, missing. Vanished, and then there's a guy named General Thomas Du Bois. He was this General Roger Ramey's chief of staff in '47. The, the Roger Ramey was the guy in Fort Worth, Texas, where Marcel had to go. So this Du Bois was very involved in the whole crash. He was seen in photos with Ramey and Marcel. In '91, he was interviewed and stated that the whole balloon thing was a cover story. And he made it clear that the entire cover-up was being managed by a general named, I think it's Clemens McMullen from the Pentagon. And McMullen made it clear to him that this crash was above top secret. So again, to close this this uh, story, if it was just a weather balloon, why are the trees clipped? I didn't even really get into that. Why is the ground gouged? Why is the sand like glass? Why is the army incarcerating Brazil for over a week? Why are people being threatened with their lives? Why did several witnesses state they saw beings? Why are all these records destroyed? And we could ask many more questions, but even though so few people to this day actually believe the Air Force's explanation of Roswell being this uh, crash weather balloon, the truth is the tired narrative is still promoted to this day by the guardians of truth. And that is the Roswell story. Yeah.
1: You know, we, we brought on a, a gentleman who described how you can film UFOs if you go to, you know, past a certain frames per second on your phone, that there's actually way more traffic in our atmosphere of UFOs and activity. We just can't see it with the human eye because these things fly so fast. And then, you know, a lot of people have come on our show and talked about being abducted. So if this, is, if this abduction program is going on all, all over the world, and you can film these things in the atmosphere. I say all that to say that there's probably a lot of these things. There's a lot of craft, so the chances are higher that one of them is going to crash at some point. Right? But the skeptic's are going to say, "Well, how does an advanced species an advanced technology, you know, crash?" Well, given the sheer numbers of other stories you've heard on our podcast, there's a lot of these things out there, so chances are they crash. So what do you think, Derek? How does this how does an alien or UFO crash?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I would answer that partly with you could ask the same thing about these pre Diluvian ancient Egyptians who had incredible knowledge, a profound high order of astronomical knowledge. Again, I was just in Egypt. I think I came back from this trip with even more questions than before as I dived deeper into who I'm not talking about the dynastic Egyptians of 3000 BC. I'm talking about the pre-Diluvian ancient Egyptians of at least 10,000 BC or older. Maybe Um, these guys had profound knowledge of universal harmonic, rhythmic proportional laws, mathematics, scientific knowledge that was written into their temples uh, not with texts, but in myth and symbols. It's crazy. The Egyptian civilization, it was based upon a precise knowledge of even the mysteries of creation. Mm. When you start to study Zeptepi, and I, I have a point with this, and I'll end it right now almost. it's kind of eerily similar. The Egyptian creation stories. And how they are similar to the Bible creation account. You've got Zeptepi, which means the first time where a primordial mound or island emerges from new, or which is the primordial water, and it almost looks like a pyramid. Atop of this pyramid or island was created Atum, also known as Atem, very similar to Adam. Hmm. And this is this guy is symbolized holding a tuning fork. Atum means complete and he became the father of Shu and Tefnut who were like the divine couple and the ancestors of other Egyptian deities. So you see this advanced knowledge, but as we know, they stopped. Mm -hmm. Something happened. They either destroyed themselves or maybe it was cataclysm, but I, I guess I... To answer your question, that you could ask the same thing about the ancient Egyptians, right? As brilliant as they were, um, they weren't perfect. They they lost it. Uh they either destroyed themselves or something. So I would say the same about these advanced crafts. We're talking about possible entities. Just because they're advanced doesn't mean it's hundred percent flawless. And um, I think we're gonna see with some of these other stories. Uh, that we're going to get into, if we have time, more more emotion, uh, more of the human side of this stuff that will kind of bring it all together in a bow.
2: And I would add that, like technology fails on all levels, whether it be you know an F eighteen or it, what you consider it advanced technology, it's not it's not perfect, right? This happens all the time in in conventional aircraft, and I don't think it, we I think we'd, you know just from a very practical standpoint, I, I think we'd be remiss to think that. It, it always works perfectly. We know that it doesn't, and doesn't in our in our space. And and if we're to believe that technology is, is a in in this case is something like you know perhaps passed on from the Watchers, or as we talk about the Book of Enoch and what happened in Gen six, and you have this 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 movement of tech it's never going to be perfect. So I think it's 100 percent plausible and very very highly likely that you have. Even catastrophic failures in this in this imperfect technology. These aren't. This isn't. Which I think even lends more credence to the physicality of these things, right? Because as we're talking about the top of the show, a lot of visceral reactions to the article that came out today. It's holograms. It's not a a physical thing, and yet if we look at at these things crashing, that's very physical. And then as a technological thing, technology is not infallible. So I, I think it's perfectly. In the same way, a brand new car off the line will break down and have a, has something wrong with it. In the same way that the most advanced technology we have right now will fail. It does. That's what happens, right? So you have the, the element of error and the element of fallibility valu- and, and technology. And then that's how you get a crash. Luke, even the DeLorean wasn't made well. Man, you know, these grays were tick tocking and, and, and driving. You know, that's what'll get you. That or they had
1: the Ford Tempo version of their UFO.
2: Right. It's the Ford Fiesta or the Pinto. Yeah.
0: Nate, you mentioned people capturing UFOs in your phone. I sent you guys a video that I took in 2018 where I was literally at the Nordstrom Cafe eating lunch and I look out, (laughs) I look out west toward, you know, Seattle and saw something massive. The, the video doesn't do it justice because I kind of cut the tail end. But watch that later and let me know what you think. To my eye, it looked like a massive cigar-shaped UFO. And it's spherical. It's white. Almost like it's disguising itself as a almost a piece of cloud. But you can tell this is some kind of craft because mm. it's, it's going pretty fast. So anyway, check that out. Uh, I might have actually captured... One on my 2018 iPhone, so there you go. Have you guys heard of the Aztec crash of 1948? No. So Aztec crash, 1948. So you guys remember the show X-Files? Well, the the character Scully, that was actually copied from the real Frank Scully, who wrote uh, one of the first books about UFOs called Behind the Flying Saucers, published in 1950. So he was this researcher, author, um, hunting down all these X-Files and crash retrievals. Uh, in his book, he included this story of the Aztec crash. And then later researchers, uh, Scott and Suzanne Ramsey, they're, uh, they've done the most work on the Aztec crash. They spent over 25 years <laughs> writing books about this crash, vetting witnesses. They archived 50,000 rela- related documents from sources including the U.S. Army, Air Force, FBI, CIA. And these graphics that you guys have with this Aztec crash were created under the strict guidance of uh, an artist named Tom Bogan who worked with historian Michael Schratt and author Scott Ramsey. So these graphics are extremely detailed to the source, which is cool. It's not just AI, right? Right. So Aztec New Mexico... March 25th, 1948. This is eight months after Roswell. A crisp, pre-dawn morning in the high desert of New Mexico, about 12 and a half miles from northeast of Aztec, there's this goat rancher named Valentin Archuleta. He's walking toward his corral to let livestock out to graze. When suddenly he's stunned by a sonic boom that draws his attention upward Uh, Towards the sky, towards this rocky mesa. And overhead in the distance, as he looks, he's seeing sparks fly, as a large glowing disc scrapes the face of a mesa and flutters down in distress. Valentine heads to the nearest phone. He's shaken, and it was located at the Blanco General Store, and he calls the Kirtland Air Force Base in Albuquerque, New Mexico to explain what he had just witnessed. I kind of wish he had skipped that part and he just went out there. Around the same time as this is happening, a brush fire is reported near what's called Heart Canyon Road, about 12 miles from Aztec. And so these four oil field workers led by a guy named Doug Noland, they're sent out by the El Paso oil company to make sure the company's big drip tank out there is not in danger of this fire. So these guys are driving out as they arrive to near where this big drip tank is. They notice something strange sitting above on the Mesa. And so Doug Nolan and these three other oil workers, they decide to go climb the Mesa and get a closer look. I like these guys. Yeah. So they make the climb as they reach the top of the outcropping. They come over the top. Their eyes are met with a shocking sight. They see a large disc-shaped craft silently lying at an angle. The craft is almost perfectly intact and it has an aluminum exterior finish. As they get closer, they realize there's no notable, noticeable seams, rivets, or bolts. Uh, it looks as if it's molded. It measured 99 and a half feet in diameter. It featured an upper dome above and a lower dome beneath, with this circular disc in the middle. And you can see by the pictures, this one's more unique than other images of craft. You see, this one's just—it's just got a super huge disc on it, which is kind of cool. The outer edge of the craft had three gold-colored rings that ran around the entire outer edge of the disk. Along the outer circumference of a disk were six 16-inch circular porthole-like windows with a mirror finish. Now, here's where it gets interesting. These four oil workers eventually climb up the ridge of the craft, and they begin to look for a way inside. And this is... One of the rare occasions, as Michael Schratt points out, historian who's really researched this case, this is one of the rare occasions where civilians actually reach the crash site before the military does. That's partly why we have this testimony. So these four these oil workers suddenly they notice a US Army helicopter come out of nowhere and make one circle around the scene and then leave, which really surprised them because back then helicopters were very rare. And so they were like, okay, time is short. Uh, We've got to find a way in before we're kicked out of here. And so they start looking for a way in. One of them notices a small crack, uh, almost like a quarter-sized hole in one of the windows. And they appear inside this porthole-like window to their dismay, they see two small bodies slumped over a control panel. Soon after this, um, some local ranchers by the names of Mr. and Mrs. Knight arrive on scene to see what the commotion is about. So again, time is short. More, more people are showing up. Uh, the oil worker, Doug, I think it was, goes back to his truck, grabs a g- giant long pole that was on this work truck and and he brings it up to the craft and pokes it through this hole in the window. Somehow, according to, again, these eyewitness accounts in the books from Scott and Susan Ramsey, somehow this guy activates something on the control panel that opens the entry hatch on the bottom of the craft. Talk about a shocker, right? Right, yeah. So these, these oil workers quickly make their way inside the craft they notice there's two main levels. They first go, I believe, to the lower level where they, they find the two humanoid entities that were leaning over in these by these consoles. They were approximately four and a half to five feet tall. And they were, I guess, in swivel-like chairs by like control panels. The bodies were gray and appeared to be scorched, they said, from decompression. And the entities were wearing one-piece uh, tight-fitting blue-like suits, and they were sitting in front of, again, what looked like control consoles, and the testimony from um, this Doug Nolan, I believe, was that there was alien iconology or something that was similar to hieroglyphics that was displayed on the walls and that could be considered, that it was also on these screens, and it was almost as if it was somehow projected onto it, like with a projector, basically 3D in a sense, Next, they go to the upper level of the craft where there's various compartment-like sections that contained another 14 uh, of these dead humanoid bodies inside. So a total of 16 entities were found. Soon, the military arrives in full force uh, along with fire personnel. And they begin to tell everybody to get away and remove these bodies one by one from the craft. They lay them out on the desert floor. Uh, Here's my favorite part of the story. There was a Baptist minister named Solon Brown who was leaving the town of Aztec early that morning. And he notices all these vehicles like speeding out of town and driving out towards this road that he knew went to this mesa, which he thought was a very odd situation for super early in the morning. And so curiosity gets the best of him. And he follows this, this basically this armada out to this crash site and he gets there, he sees the craft and he sees these small, I think he described them as lifeless childlike bodies. And so he's a minister. He asked uh, the authorities if there was anything that he could do. And if he could administer the last rights to the bodies. And so you can see the, this detailed in those photos, Solon Brown went around and he is, praying or whatever he's doing, administering the last rites. And I guess Solon Brown was on record telling some of his congregants later that, quote, you're never going to believe what I just saw, end quote. And according to researcher Scott Ramsey, who wrote the book on the Aztec crash, he confirmed that this was true. Somehow he interviewed the last surviving member of the church that actually heard this Solon Brown say that. So talk about church service of all church services. Hey guys, you'll never guess what I just did. The military interrogates everyone on the site, threatens them with their lives and tells them never to speak at this event. And to end this story, the Aztec recovery was apparently coordinated by uh, directly at a Walker Air Force base approximately 200 Army and Air Force personnel were there working on the recovery for two full weeks. Uh, and when the military accessed the inner portion of the disk or the craft, they found the whole craft was held together by this high-tech pin device that when deactivated, the entire craft divided into three equal segmented pie sections So you've got the central column in the middle of the craft, and then the upper and lower dome bases and these three equal pie segments that make up the disc. And so the military, in brute fashion, they pull up with their M25 tank transporters, extend these massive cables around the pie-shaped segments and just rip them and pull them from the column, drag them away from the crash site, load them onto their tank transporters, cover them with tarps and chains and marking them as explosives. And they were sent apparently to Los Alamos for reverse engineering. That is the Aztec crash retrieval story. That's
1: wild. I never heard that one before. Yeah, me neither. That's interesting. Again, not to be the dead horse here, and not to pick on the skeptics, but this is three pieces of a pie that are fit together by an advanced system of pins that kind of hold this thing all together that we don't even understand. This stuff isn't made here, and it doesn't sound spiritual. It's a physical craft that comes from somewhere. And even this, this preacher stumbles upon it. God's people are kind of slowly waking up to the fact that there's more out there than this. But why do you think the government's always covering it up, Derek? Why do you think this stuff always disappears? Why do you think people's lives are threatened? Why are they so afraid of the public finding out that there's something else out there besides just human beings?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. I think it's a similar. Again, that goes back to the megaliths and why the cover up of ancient history. As it's been said before, you know, those who controlled the past control the future. If they don't cover it up and they go public with this stuff, number one, where people are going to be asking, "Well, who are these entities? Where did this technology come from?" Then the government's probably going to have to come clean a bit about that they've got a lot of this technology. And they're actually using it to make all kinds of military machines. And um, that's when we'd realize, okay, there's this breakaway almost civilization where the elite have this technology, but why don't we get to have it? Remember when we were kids in the 80s and we saw the magazines, man, in the year 2010, we'll be in flying cars. What happened, right? Well, it appears that um, that's been controlled. It's just like what the dynastic Egyptians did in Egypt. These pre-Diluvians created this, this incredible civilization built on what appears to be free energy where these ancient pyramids are like generators powering the civilization. And they had these temples that were literally created with water and geology meant to heal the body. They knew how to do this. Well, when the dynastic Egyptians came along, they built massive mud brick insulating walls around every ancient temple to basically do what the government's doing with this technology. They're keeping it for themselves. So in the time of the dynastics, 3000 BC, you couldn't just go into tap into some of this energy if you wanted for fertility purposes or healing purposes. You had to pay money or you had to be in. And so, again, I think it's part of human nature. Yeah. It's
2: about power, right? The whistleblower that came out today is basically saying that a lot of this information is has been held in black projects and is you've been held from, withheld from Congress, right? So, you have, it's about having no oversight, the ability to take this and potentially monetize it or, and or use it for... You know, domination, military power positions, right? I, I think it's a, yeah, there's something to be said for, for having this and your enemies not having it, for one, and then also having no oversight. And in order to do that, you've got to kind of whisk it away. It's interesting. I mean, it's, um, it's kind of what this, what Grush, the, who's the whistleblower today, was saying. Did you
0: see that video I posted not too long ago of this video from the 1950s? It was called the Hiller Flying Platform, the US Army was working on. I mean, I remember being shocked when I saw that footage. Because if I saw that, like, if it was like a modern day 2023 video, I would think, whoa, this is high tech army technology. But it was made in 1955. It just shows you the cover up right there. If the army was creating hoverboards for their soldiers to fly on in 1955, where did that go? And what do they really have now?
1: Yeah, tech is always being sort of whisked away or being controlled by the few, right? If you invent a, a car engine that runs on hydrogen, you end up dead or something like that, right? They they always seem to control the technology. And I think what you're saying is in ancient times they started to do that as well. Eventually they started to build fences around their healing sites and their temples and pyramids and whatnot, sounds like. But Derek, I see a connection between these UFO stories you're talking about these images and these holograms being projected on the wall. It sounds like an ancient language and we have crop circles with the same thing. And we have megaliths with the same thing. Is there a connection here between all these, is there some sort of ancient language or language of angels
0: here? Great question. And to me, that is the connection. Like I said, I've been doing megalithic marvels for a while and One of the central themes is lost ancient technology. Well, you start to see all the similarities or similarities with lost ancient technology of like if we're talking ancient Egypt and then a lot of what we're talking about here with these craft, these symbols. And again, I think it goes back to whoever these entities are, whoever's making these craft where these symbols are almost projected on these what looks like consoles, It's like the ancient Egyptians. They've got precise, profound knowledge of the universal harmonic, rhythmic, proportional laws, and they don't need to write out their ABCs. They use symbols. Almost have a... I mean, like the ancient Egyptian symbols. They're they're not just 3D in their precision and the way they're embedded in granite, but the meaning is 3D. You know, so... The meaning might mean, you know, it might refer to this netter or this God, but it also has a a meaning in nature. And so you start to peel back the onion and you realize how did these ancient Egyptians know about uh, the constellation Taurus and in this kind of stuff, it just shows you there was such a deep knowledge. And again, I guess to answer your question, that's probably what I think is going on here with these symbols.
1: It's funny, Derek, because I was at the Met yesterday looking at uh, the, the Egyptian timeline and it says, you know, 75,000 years ago, 80,000 years ago, um, they were the earliest signs of these artists' huts and stuff. And then 75,000 years go by and suddenly they invent hieroglyphics, which is like one of the most advanced languages that we know about. And it's just, it's hilarious because it doesn't make any sense that we were like cavemen. And then all of a sudden we invented one of the most complex languages possible. Mm-hmm. And then a few hundred years later, we we built these massive pyramids. It's like, right? It's just mind blowing.
0: Yeah, no, that's such a great point because the main mainstream Egyptology or history they call the era before the the dynastic Egyptians of three thousand BC the pre-dynastic. I think we talked about this at BlurryCon real quick, and basically the pre-dynastic era were like the cavemen. So they want us to believe that they went from basically cavemen to I think, you know, the early dynasties building these pyramids. But funny how the later dynasties, their pyramids got worse and Hmm. everything got worse. So how do you explain that? So many mysteries, but I better get to this last crash site so we have time. All back to Egypt, man. All roads lead back to Egypt, don't they? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Oh, I even posted a, a video recently of... When I was at the Egyptian Museum in Cairo, I'm looking at this display that's marked, you know, pre dynastic or prehistoric Egypt. Again, this is before the dynastic Egyptians who get the credit for all the building the cool stuff. Well, you're looking at the pottery of these pre dynastic peoples, and it's, you know, it's archaic and you can tell it was made by hand. But guess what's painted on almost every piece in this case? Pyramids. Interesting. They saw the pyramids of their day, meaning if pre-dynastics 9,000 BC to I think 3,000 or 3,100 BC, they're painting the pyramids before the mainstream says the pyramids were built, right? So it's stuff like that. Okay, so let's talk about the Kingman crash. So Roswell was 1947. The Aztec crash was 1948. Now we're talking about the Kingman crash of 1953. So again, as you might imagine, the public knew nothing about the Kingman event at the time, which remained covered up like Roswell for decades after. First break in the case came again from good old Frank Scully, who wrote many books. I think this one was called Behind the Flying Saucers. He mentioned the Kingman crash and then other researchers later found uh, additional witnesses that were alive, got their stories and this, this crash was eventually resurrected. So it all starts Kingman, Arizona, May 18th, 1953. They
2: like the desert. It sounds like I would say the same thing The Southwest is a hot spot, huh? Or, or they can't navigate there. They crashed in the Southwest for whatever reason. <laughs>
0: So during the night of May 18th, 1953, about 40 scientists are quickly boarded onto a bus uh, from Indian Springs Airfield, and they make a long trip out on desert roads to this remote site about eight miles northeast of Kingman, Arizona, where something has crashed in the desert. The primary eyewitness for this uh, case uh, was one of these 40 scientists. He was an atomic bomb scientist. Uh, So you could say he's probably a pretty smart guy named Arthur G. Stanzel, Arthur G. Stanzel. And he worked at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. It's really interesting when you start to study all these crash retrievals, so many roads lead to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. So he's working there. He gets the call along with these other 39 scientists, hey, jump in this bus. We need you out here at the site now. So according to Arthur G. Stanzel, they get out there and there is a craft embedded in the sand at a 15 degree angle. There were already two huge spotlights that had been set up by uh, the military that were shining on the craft. And you guys can see the photo for this. It was approximately 30 feet in diameter. So this one's much smaller than, I think the Aztec one, which was 99 and a half. Yeah. It was 14 feet tall. It had a series of slots going around the outer circumference of the disc. It had a brushed aluminum-like surface. And the craft featured a curved entry hatch uh, but had no hinges whatsoever. And the scientists were told, even before they're getting out of the bus, they're they're told that the craft is made out of material that is classified. It's above top secret. Basically, don't even ask us about the material of the craft. And you can kind of see why if you go down that rabbit hole in your brain, you know, if they find out what this is, then I mean, why can't we put this on our fighter jets and have them be impenetrable, right? So after making measurements and later studying the crash site, this Arthur G. Stanslick concludes that the craft struck the ground like he he would he he assumed it at a twelve hundred miles per hour. Wow! But it was strangely undamaged. And he said, definitely not human made. He said the object, uh, quote, the object was not built by anything, obviously, that we know about on earth, end quote. Now, here's where this uh, story gets really strange. According to Arthur Stanzel, um, there were four humanoids found alive inside craft, And he said the humanoids came up to the shoulders of a five foot ten man. And their eyes were slightly further apart than humans, and they had pointed chins. So these these entities seem to be a bit different than your typical gray, almost a little bit more human-like, but not. According to researcher Harry Drew, who did a lot of research on this crash, there was one humanoid that stood in front of the other three and appeared to be the leader and there was somehow communication between the high level military brass and this humanoid commander like entity. And the entity said, "We will go with you under one condition that you do not separate us." And so a deal is made between the retrieval team and these humanoids not to you know separate them and take them away apart. The scientists were only allowed to stay on the site, I guess, for about an hour as a group and were quickly loaded back onto the bus and left on the way back. Every scientist had to raise their right hand and give an oath that they would not disclose what they saw. And so in a hurry to clear this crash site, the Army Corps of Engineers uh, brings in another M25 tank transporter with a long like 18-wheeler tractor trailer behind it and so the core engineers are out there they build this big scaffold like wooden cradle to go on top of this transporter and they somehow prop the craft up into it to haul it and they quickly head toward uh the hoover dam and they're just trying to uh get out of here and but I don't know if it was because it was the time of the morning or what, too much traffic, they felt like they needed to find their own shortcut across the river. So they head towards the river, they string this massive cable across the Colorado River somewhere near this input they found. Then they bring a barge, a massive barge down the river and attempt to drive the tank transporter onto the barge. But as the transporter is starting to cross the river, the cable snaps. And at one point, the outer wall of the disc slams into Hoover Dam. And so maybe we should at some point have a blurry expedition to go see if we can find the dent on Hoover Dam.
2: Wow. Hoover Dam is a blurry place anyway, allegedly. So that's, uh, that's wild.
0: Eventually, they somehow cross the river. And then again, according to researcher Harry Drew, they bring the craft, check this out, to a remote operating facility at Groom Lake. Hmm. This is 1953. I think the U-2 spy plane's first flight was 55. Uh, We know uh, this is where Lazar saw the craft in the 80s. So this, 1953, I mean, it sounds like if this is true... Groom Lake was at least somehow operating. And uh, researcher, Harry Drew interviewed a guy named Colonel Wendell Stevens, who was also part of this retrieval operation. And Wendell Stevens described seeing, again, this is a megalithic connection, a pyramidal rock structure when he was at the site in 1953. According to Harry Drew, he later went to the site and found whatever this pyramidal rock structure was. Uh, I need to do a deeper dive on that. But according to historian Michael Shrad and others, this is like kind of one of the smoking guns that they believe prove this case to be true. Is that this Wendell Stevens said he described this rock structure, and then this Harry Drew somehow. Finds it. I don't know how big or how small it was, but that is the Kingman, Arizona story.
1: Derek, I don't think we've brought this up yet, but do you think that there's, if there's a war going on in all realms, there's a war, there's wars going on in our realm? You know, we war with each other, we build our technology, we shoot each other down. What about in the angelic realm? Do you think some of these crashes could be the good guys shooting down the bad guys as easy
0: as that? Mm. Hey, maybe that's a possibility by other ufos i i I have my doubts about humans shooting them down from our side yeah Yeah.
1: i don't think we are
0: yeah just because when you read a lot of these reports the military has enough they have a hard time just getting into them themselves right, right once they're crashed right and so yeah maybe maybe um It's unfriendly fire in the galactic skies. Maybe it has to do with solar flares, stuff like that. Maybe like we've talked about earlier, it's some kind of operator error or these entities. Clearly, they've got bodies. Maybe it has something to do with losing pressurization or getting sick with something. I don't know. Those are my thoughts.
1: Yeah, it's interesting that they're wearing suits and that there's like these glass panels on the front of them, on some of these. So this idea of pressurization, you know, we see that in normal airplanes today, but could be an intense pressure. And I know that our atmospheres are probably different than what they're used to, if we think about this logically. So, yeah, something happens. The plane, the UFO becomes, you know, unpressurized, which could affect the operators instantly, which could maybe be reason why they crash. But they're pulling massive Gs if they're actually flying the way that we fly, So maybe they have some sort of pressure system where they can handle that kind of speed.
0: Right, yeah, that's why I wonder I wonder about pressurization, and it's similar it's interesting that you know, when you look at these photos, all these craft are uniquely different, yet they've got this similar look overall, right? Usually with the uh, the disc shape in the middle, these porthole- like windows metallic like finish uh, they seem seamless and so all of that um, man it's just so interesting to consider.
2: I was going to say that I think it was I think it was very interesting too is the timing here right it's May 18th 1953 President Eisenhower was sworn in January 20th 1953 and there's some famous lore including his granddaughter corroborate saying that Eisenhower did in fact meet with ETs and, and people hypothesized that it it, there was a deal struck, right, and so I think it's fascinating that that it probably didn't happen until a trip in Palm Springs in 1954. But here we have a story, and, and I'm not sure if this is the first or, but definitely probably not the last of there being beings there that were taken into for interviewing or custody or whatever you want to you want to talk about it. According to this this narrative and this account, that's what happened, and within a year or so, less than a year, we have. President of the United States, allegedly, per his own family, leaving a golf trip for a, quote, dentist appointment, emergency dentist appointment, but, but people believe and the, the, the narrative there is that he went to Edwards' Air Force Base and met with some extraterrestrial entities. And uh, you know, we can define that however we want. And this, On this podcast, we, we look at that through a biblical worldview. So there's, there's a lot of thoughts there, but the timing to me is a little interesting. Not that I'm not saying these are necessarily potentially that, but the fact that there's a story from the 53... It's the same time during Eisenhower's presidency, and we haven't done any episodes on that yet. And it's to be a fascinating deep dive when we can get the right researcher person on that one. But that's a say there's a lot of hypotheses out there about crashed UFOs, interactions between our government and some of these, the pilots of these of these craft, and then you know, even this very famous or infamous Eisenhower story. So fascinating. And again, I can't get, get past it. we just said in the beginning, Derek, that. These particular three stories are from a very similar time period, within within about eight years, seven eight years, and they're all in the Southwest. They all occur in New Mexico and Arizona. So, either these UFOs don't like that dry that dry heat and the cold nights in the desert, or uh, there's something going on in there. And we know that, you know, Los Alamos. We know that a lot of what was done with the atomic bomb happened in, in, the south, in the Southwest, the testing for the Manhattan Project, for example. We also know that there's anecdotal stories about craft interacting with our our nuclear bases here,
1: right? And potentially turning them off, right? So there's something- Dude, that's crazy, because I just looked up the Wikipedia page yeah. the, for the atomic bomb, just to try to get the, the, the generic facts, because I was thinking there was a connection too. Well, that's where they did the testing, right? And so, mm-hmm.
2: of course, this would have been in the in the 40s, you know, before when they were developing the bomb that was ultimately dropped in Japan, end of the war. But we have very similar proximity. Coincidence? Sure, it could be. Absolutely, could be. Perhaps it's easier to find these things when they crash in the desert. It could be very simple like that. If they crash in the Canadian wilderness, you're probably not going to find them, right? So there's could be some of that to it as well. It, I just find it all very, very interesting. It all kind of it all could, it all could fit. No, you know? whether absolutely. it does or not is, is one thing, but it it could.
0: I'm glad you brought up the Eisenhower account. I've always found that fascinating, and maybe that could be a part two to this sometime. Mm-hmm. I definitely think there's a connection with that, and it's just it's it's crazy when you start looking into that the supposed supposed agreement that was made, right. right?
2: That
1: Eisenhower Accord, as they call it, right? Yeah. So
0: it's
1: wild. You know, Derek, it makes me think about kind of the a thought that I have a lot on our show. Is that, you know, when you grow up in our, in our system and you learn history, you learn it from a three dimensional worldview. Like there's just human beings kind of interacting with other human beings. But when you go back and you listen to our podcast and you kind of reread some of the biblical stuff with a 4D lens, you understand that the spiritual realm is interacting with the physical realm here. And so when you plug these things in, you start to, you, you know, you see it in four dimensions. You start to see these historical accounts from a different worldview. Um what but what I do love though is that it's always some farmer on the side of the mountain whether you see angels telling you the birth of messiah or you see a, a a UFO skipping across the the desert floor it's always someone out there with some animals so if you want to see something blurry become a farmer get some goats or some sheep or whatever and get out and uh see what you can a see a shepherd's a good line of work for having a and uh, and an,
2: an angelic encounter
0: i think I think that is another. I think that is another reason for the um, supposed cover-up. Is that if the public knew, for instance, that governments had this kind of technology, you wouldn't need the internal combustion engine. You wouldn't need all these things. There would be. We could travel with ease, right? We talked about the flying cars before. I mean, there's so many other purposes that would make life easier, right? If this kind of technology was harnessed for good and not just for fighting machines or flying craft. So
2: That's interesting. That's that's a good angle. I mean, right? It's a a tool to enslave. You have asymmetrical war, essentially, right? And you can also hold this to keep people in the machine. Or in the Matrix, or whatever you want to say it, right? It's uh, man, Derek. This is fun. This this is this is out, It's so funny how it it feels out of the realm of megalithic marvels, but then it it all comes back, and it, there's a symmetry. It, it, there, in it, it, it makes sense, right? And then we we start talking about, you know, the idea of of finding, you know, interesting interesting things in in the Bible, whether it be Daniel and the and the Prince of Persia and which is one we like to bring up a lot about traveling, or you, or you have, you know, these stories from Nuremberg that we covered Nate on the show of these of these things happening in the sky. But these are these things can be ancient and also old, and then also new, and 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 yet here we are. It, it does fit. You have hieroglyphics, and you have, you know, all the above. It all roads, as a joke, kind of do come back to Egypt and to ancient history and understanding the past, understand the present, right, and. So yeah man it, as always the research is meticulous and we uh, were grateful for that and this was fun this is a fun little uh outroad you know from our usual conversations on giants and and bones and and megaliths which I uh, uh, absolutely adore those are my most favorite because I I just love history so this was great man so hey um as always Tell people where they can uh, where they can interact with what you're doing and maybe what you're up to. And if we, if we talked to the top, just got back from Egypt.
0: Yeah, we had a had an amazing trip to Egypt. Pretty much last week. It was incredible. Um, just a great bunch of people. And like I said at the top of the show, I came back with more questions. I think this time, and yeah, I got a Peru trip in October, and uh, that's going to be fun. I'm going to go on the heels of you guys. You guys are going this month, right? Last last week. Yeah, incredible. So, got some tours you to look forward to, and then yeah, other than that, I've been doing some more um with the history podcast, so people can follow Megal- megalithic marvels podcast. I've been always busy on the gram, as you guys know, and having fun. So that's basically it.
1: Well, Derek, don't go inventing a, a car that runs on water and get disappeared. Okay? Yeah, seriously, bro. Major you around because that seems to be the theme, you know, everyone from Tesla down if you if you invent something that they don't like either and they can't hire you then you disappear.
0: Tesla, yeah. I think Tesla tapped into some of what we're talking about whether it was ancient advanced technology and it's crazy to consider he did it in the 1800s. And yeah, I've been studying his life uh, a bit more these days and that's another fascinating subject we could get into some time. Even the Tesla
2: technology. There was yeah.
0: some crazy mystery surrounding his birth. Did you guys know he was apparently born at the stroke of midnight during a lightning storm? Wow. Oh,
2: this is blurry. <laughs> <laughs> this is definitely, <laughs> and that's a teaser for the na- for one of our, na- our future podcasts. Uh, yeah. Hey, Hey, st- stay good out there. We need you for BlurryCon 25 sometime. You know, we, we got a lot of, a lot of things to do.
1: So 24, um, 24 i mean whatever
0: yeah it was fun guys <laughs> thanks for having- yeah 25 don't skip 24
1: come on now come on now what
2: year is it i meant like the 25th edition of blurry con like oh, we're all okay. in our 80s yeah uh, or luke whatever however luke, old that luke is luke went
1: through a portal on this episode skipped a year
2: i'm back now yeah and that's I what happens. Mean, i me, meant the 25th edition that was a poor that was a poor <laughs> choice <laughs> it's all right it'd be like BlurryCon ten or something you'd be like we're not going to the past
1: to do that one so Eric love you man just Thanks it for it ahead yeah thanks for coming on the show and always uh just just supporting what we do um and just being a friend in the space man there's a lot there's a lot of people out there trying to make noise and, and figure it out but I think it's cool you know that uh we have a lot in common and we're yeah become good friends and um I just appreciate it man really yeah. and I know th- yeah I'll just say we're just glad to glad to know you, man.
2: This is uh, it's good to, good to call your friend. You're you're a good man, and you do you do exceptional work. And so we are very the baseline. Just just glad to glad to have your friendship, man. Grateful for you
0: in this hey, space. Did, did you know that? Grateful for you guys. It's great to have uh, bros you can uh, lean on uh, when things get tough in some of the spaces we we do. You guys know what I'm talking about. So thanks yeah. for your support. Yeah. and uh, it's just cool to cool to run together and uh i really believe we're living in a, in extremely exciting times where people's minds are being awakened like never before and we get to be part of that so thanks again guys
1: it's true man that's awesome. good put the plug in some of that ancient alien stuff that seems to be taking over everyone's minds you know yeah. it's good to have uh, i know you're creating content 24 7 well everyone out there go Go, go at least, like we say, follow Derek on Instagram and uh, subscribe to the podcast. Hit up hit up his website and uh, go on his trips. He's got two trips coming up. Get some tickets and get blurry. Yeah. Get
2: very blurry.
1: Get in the bone zone.
2: To Thanks, never, leave. Yeah. <laughs> never leave. Yeah. Never leave. Thanks, D. Good to see you, bro. See you, Derek. Thanks for having for a couple hours here. appreciate it. Bye, uh, brother.